0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker and I'm Leon Gittler. and this is episode 30 in our series for 2015 and today's date is Friday the 28th of August. Leon, what's on the schedule for this week?
1: Well, Gary, we've got a fascinating interview with a guy, a British teacher called Abdul Chohan, who runs the Esser Academy in Bolton in England. Now, Bolton's a very down-and-out place, as you know. He has rescued... Bolton, and he's actually teaching kids all about technology, how to use technology in their decision making, and preparing them for the world of technology and business. Initially, when when they took over, the pass
0: rate was about 30%. Today, it's 100%. There's life in the school. There's life in the community. They've changed the way of teaching. And these kids are up there on the internet with presentations. The whole of the resources of iTunes U is available to them. It's just turned the whole thing around.
1: Absolutely fantastic. So we'll be we talking to him. And then we're going to have a chat with BT economist Chris Caton, all about... The commodity prices which are heading south and the impact on the share market.
0: And south is really it. It's down around about South Pole at the moment.
1: But first of all, let's talk to Abdel Chohan.
0: Abdul, tell me where the school was. It was pretty flat on its back, wasn't it? And you, how you transformed it?
2: That's right. So um, we started off um, on our journey as ESA Academy in 2009. But before that, it was a school that had been serving a catchment area for almost 50 years. Um, but over time, you know, things hadn't changed. And it got to a point where it became the school that you didn't want to send your children to. So my parents never sent me to that school. What was also really interesting was that um, before the change to ESA Academy and before we started on this kind of project, I was a teacher uh, of chemistry in that school for almost 11 years. You know, I must say it was a very comfortable place to work um, because things never changed. We got to a point where actually the school almost got closed down in 2008 because our numbers dropped and because if our numbers drop and results drop, um, the finances that the government give us um, actually dropped as well so we started this downward spiral in terms of staff morale in terms of the quality of building in terms of you know the numbers that were the lack of the numbers that we were getting into our school at that point um, the government had launched in the the UK the government had launched something called the academies program where you could get sponsors um, that were quite successful in business to be involved now they weren't sponsors in terms of finances but they were sponsors in terms of governance and leadership and so on. So the ESA Foundation got involved and that's basically run by a couple of brothers who have done quite well for themselves. Um, So they decided to kind of get involved and and make a difference. And it was at that time that I was appointed as part of the leadership team to make this kind of change happen.
0: The method of change was to totally revolutionized what how you taught and the tools and whatnot you use Is that That,
2: true that's right i mean our our principle at that time you know in terms of what we were going to do and how we were going to do it there wasn't really a, a plan you know to say what is it that we're actually going to do all we knew that if we saw something and it was broken we had to fix it we also knew that whatever we did we were probably going to get wrong but it was important that we try and get it as less wrong as possible so we never professed to have the right answers, but we were prepared to take a difficult journey and to go through the kind of changes that were necessary and have a go as many times as necessary to fix a particular problem. In hindsight, we re- we, we changed lots of different things. You know, we looked at the ideas of building relationships because that's something that any organization needs to know how to do. How do you make a good relationship happen? So we did simple things like we realized that... To have a good relationship, you need good food. So we employed a chef. The fact that people would stay in school to have food, when parents would come in, we put nice food out. Suddenly, the social values and the impact and how how people felt in terms of being valued and so on suddenly began to change.
0: Was this a, an economically depressed area, sort of reasonably
2: low class That's income? right, that's right. So basically, this particular area, you're looking at... 80% of our students coming from 10 to 15% of the most deprived areas in the UK measured by different indices. You know, we have great challenges um, in terms of the kind of student body that we have. We have lots of migrant communities that have moved in. We have parents that are single parent families. We, have, um, we also have kind of generations of um, unemployed families as well. You know, we've got a large influx of Eastern European families that have moved into the area so this presents lots of challenges challenges around language initially um we have we we have challenges from the government because our results and metrics we still have to kind of adhere to the same kind of um testing and um, rigorous kind of measure that any other school in the UK would be subjected to as well but our challenges and our starting point are a much lower level if you want
0: You've got also cultural problems, too, with the difference between um, a Pole and a Pakistani.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, these are things that we've had to kind of learn to kind of amalgamate and infuse and typical and traditional methods of trying to overcome issues like that just wouldn't work because we're looking at 46 different languages that are spoken in our school. What actually happened was we started to, to discover that actually technology is a means of overcoming many of these barriers. So what we began to see um, was there was two th- one major thing that we needed to change. And that was the belief that people had. And our philosophy has been that if we're able to change belief, we can change behavior.
0: That's belief in
2: self and belief in community. That's right. Belief in self, belief in what's possible, you know, belief in that things are not limited you know, belief that is going to be a a will-do attitude rather than a can-do attitude. So these things were actually quite big for us. In order to instill that belief, there are two kind of key ingredients that we've learned along the way. And those two ingredients are simplicity and reliability. If you can make things simple and reliable, then actually your journey to changing belief is going to be a lot easier.
0: So when you introduced your technology where did you go you you began simply with what ipads and
2: no so actually this and It it follows on from that philosophy because typically in schools, um, we were using technology that was not always simple, it was not always reliable and schools spend thousands and thousands of dollars on technology that isn't always reliable and it breaks belief because teachers feel there must be something wrong with me rather than the technology. So what we did, we just made a fundamental shift so rather than spending more money on laptop trolleys or interactive whiteboards, we realised that for one laptop trolley I could actually buy 180 of these devices at the time that were there before iPads and they're known as iPod touches and what I did and this was the fundamental shift was that rather than doing the wrong things really well we replace our laptop trolleys with iPod touches, and we actually gave out around a thousand iPod touches to teachers and students. And that's when we began to see change. So, you know, the school that we were residing in at the time didn't have a network, so we had to go through kind of putting a network in, you know, it didn't have the connectivity of in, in terms of internet the way we wanted it. So we had to try and improve that. Because we were coming from an environment where, and it's funny for me to Sit here and think now that actually eight years ago we never had internet in our school, and now we've got two broadbands going on, we've got content that's distributed around the world, we've got students that are able to take their learning home and create videos and presentations, we've got teachers that can plan lesson and material and it's immediately available to students, we've got teachers that can give voice feedback to students on their work through the devices. It's completely revolutionized the way we learn.
0: And you've done this within the budget allocated to the school.
2: Yeah. So one of the things that we realized was that certainly in the UK, and I've seen this on my, on my travels over the last year as well, is that um, schools kind of... Continue to do the things that they've always done. And what we did was we decided to question where we were spending our money. So, if you take a a, a logical kind of um, explanation to this, if you take the case of one student, over three years, we will very easily spend £300 on photocopying. That's the cost of an iPad. So, if we buy an iPad and it lasts, and in our experience, they've been lasting four years then what we've seen is that not only do we offset the cost of the photocopying, but we're beginning to make greater kind of savings because now we're not spending money on laptops that don't necessarily work all the time. We're not spending money on interactive whiteboards. We've just put normal televisions with Apple TVs on the back. So we can kind of send student work, teacher work up onto the screens. We're not spending lots of money on servers and infrastructure and so on to support the computers and more importantly, students are able to take this device home and continue their learning. So in essence, what this technology has allowed us to do is it's actually allowed us to expand time. But it's strange now that we're looking back, you know, this is kind of this is our DNA now in terms of what we do and this is how students learn and this is how teachers create content and we don't feel that we're limited in any way.
0: What effect has that had on the school and that obviously you've got motivation, you've got morale and a whole bunch of stuff, confidence built into a school that was pretty bad near, near death but it must also have run out into the community because apparently you've got people that are
2: moving house just to
0: get into the school.
2: So what we've, what the position, that we're in now is that actually um of course we went from our school numbers being around you know 500 600 um to now our our full capacity about 900 um students that we've got there we've now opened a primary school as well um so that's kind of going to increase our numbers again we've already got 200 um students in there and so on the thing that's been kind of very interesting for us is that um, we've seen two kinds of, uh, two kinds of changes. One is kind of quantitative in terms of data uh, and our results. So we've seen the number of students that pass and get at least five passes in their exams um, increase over the last five years or so, Um, and we saw a big jump um, from almost 66% to 93%. And that was kind of quite interesting, um, because we thought it was things that we were doing within the classroom. But actually, what we realised is that was the year when students began to take devices home, and they were able to access learning from home. This expansion of time and students actually asking questions from home, continuing to learn at home, began to give, you know, greater access, and we began to see things um, change at that point. And even kind of qualitatively, um, we began to see students working on assignments beyond school hours. We began to to see greater levels of engagement. We began to see, you know, less of the behaviour issues with students because they were more engaged. Um, So these things were kind of really measurable in terms of what we were able to do.
0: Yes, you would have had a university entrance group by now, wouldn't you?
2: Yes, we have. So and, you know, there's greater aspirations for students to kind of go off and do things beyond school. And I think the fundamental kind of thing that's changed there is that students access their learning on something called iTunes U. So this has been a big saving for us as well so schools in the uk tend to spend a lot of money on learning management systems and virtual learning environments and so on what itunes u does is, first of all it's the largest repository of educational online material in the world so schools accessing that means that our students have access to the whole repository of content so it's sort of like inspires them to go off to university to look at other material and so on and because our teachers are planning resources on there as well and actually planning and designing learning on iTunes U that gives students kind of access even after they've left school. So we have students that left school two years ago, but they're still accessing content, you know, to help them to write their personal statements and so on. And that's pretty phenomenal because in the past we would have deleted their account a week after they've left school. Um, And we've also got students now that are creating content. So they're using iTunes U to show off their own learning to a real audience around the world. So we have a student that's got almost five, 600 people that are following his course. And some of those people that are following his course are teachers. Good use of a global resource. Yeah, global resource. And the fact that we live in an age where actually just getting good results, it's not enough. Because the only thing that good results will get you is an interview. You know, after that, people want to know what else are you bringing to the party if you want. You know, what other skills have you got? What else are you capable of doing? And for a students to walk in and say, well, you know, I've got a thousand people following me on my course from 12 different countries. Okay, that's pretty remarkable. Get some attention. The
0: area Bolton Bolton, Manchester area, not known for full employment, is it?
2: No, no, not, not at all. You know, we have a lot of deprivation issues within the area. Believe it or not, we have like a lot of projects going on uh, for homeless people as well within the area. So, you know, this is a very real thing. In fact, some of the data um, that we get from our local council, local government tells us that um, the 80% of students I was referring to that come from the 10% of the most deprived areas in the UK, many of. The people that live within that area on average live eight years less compared to somebody that lives in the more affluent part of town. We feel that, you know, designing the right kind of learning, giving them access to to material and content, and giving them the ability to kind of have presence in the world will allow us to change that.
0: And this, down the track, then you're building a workforce that's pretty well educated, which would tend, if the industry and, and commerce were intelligent, would bring them
2: into your area certainly and, and you know th- that's something that we hope for because that area we, we you know that i know certainly the vision of the sponsors is to kind of create a change around that in terms of what's possible and what we can do you know to create a, a higher level of affluence and again coming back to that word of belief you know so getting people to actually believe that you know there's a lot more that is possible
0: so now you're visiting australia and you've been in victoria i believe and
2: one great thing for me is is the ability to kind of share our experiences, but also continue to build on the idea of belief, because as I've walked around and I'm seeing schools for the first time and meeting educators that have had a similar journey and they're using similar tools and they've arrived at the same conclusion but we're literally on the other ends of the world is a kind of, kind of endorsement to say, actually what we've done is the right thing, you know, and that's really quite powerful to be able to kind of experience that, you know, meeting students here in classrooms that are kind of, you know, creating their cookbooks and putting it online and people can see it, that global presence element, we're beginning to see it here as well. And looking at this idea of belief as a, as a kind of strategic leadership for change element, um, that can be employed within schools and within organisations to t- create shift in that right direction.
0: And now you've got in a in a country like the UK, as in Australia, where nationally we have to make a transition to the knowledge era you reckon you've done a fair amount towards that
2: yeah and there's two things in education one is teaching and one is learning and the idea of teaching has significantly changed because you know what now the average person if they want to know how to fix a sink they could type it in youtube and they could watch a video on it so the teaching element is there for everybody to be able to kind of you know accept but what we've become really quite interested in is the way in which learning happens so learning involves metrics and measurements and it allows us that allows the teacher to change their role from that person that is the sometimes in education is the terminology is used sage on the stage the person that knows the answers to everything that's changed so the teacher now measures how well have the children actually understood the learning. They can watch, so with the way we've organized our learning, students can watch material and content at home about the periodic table, about, you know, photosynthesis, about French or German or whatever it is, whatever it is that they're learning. But when they come into school, we want the teachers to measure that learning and how well have they understood it and where is their their cognitive abilities around this. And if, if there are any cognitive blocks, how can the teacher help to unblock that? So that becomes quite key.
0: And there we have to leave our chat with Abdul Chauhan. If you want to hear of the full interview, please tune in to Talking Technology on our site in a fortnight's time. And
1: now Chris Caden. Chris Caton, commodity prices have crashed oil is now trading but has gone below forty dollars. Copper is now down to two thousand and nine levels what 's going on
3: it's it's a very good question yeah there's no question. the fall in commodity prices uh, has become a major concern as you said oil has crashed um the I find the oil actually very interesting after uh, plummeting from more than hundred dollars a barrel in July last year this is u s dollars to um just $42 in late January. Now that movement was very much in line with previous large falls, of which we get one about every four or five years. It then bumped along the bottom for a couple of months, um, again in line with with previous uh, history, and then began to rise again in line with previous history. And then we got to about two months ago, and uh, oil prices fell. In fact, about eight weeks ago, the story changed dramatically. Oil prices have fallen every week for the past eight weeks. Um, and now sits sits around $38. So the big question is, what's going on? it isn't just them, it's also other commodity prices. I would say the renewed weakness of commodity prices, of course, has been taken by some as a sign that global economic growth may be slowing dramatically. And it shouldn't surprise there is, there's a strong link between commodity prices and global GDP growth, that's true. But um, you can look back at 30 or 40 years of history and uh, you can't convince yourself that commodity prices lead global GDP growth. So never before have commodity prices signaled that there's a recession coming. They have signaled that there was a, there was a recession going on. So, are we in a global recession right now? There isn't a single other piece of evidence that suggests that we are. So, my suspicion is that to understand what's going on with commodity prices, you have to go to those markets. And of course, that's where it gets complicated. Um, one reason why commodity prices would be especially weak right now is because um, Chinese growth has disappointed, and there are so many commodities for which um, China is a massive part of the overall global and. Market Literally 50% in in some cases. I've got a chart in front of me, actually, which which shows the copper price related to the Chinese manufacturing purchasing managers index. And the link is very, very strong indeed. So I think really commodity prices are telling us, well, even if the global economy is not weakening dramatically, then... uh, then they are signaling that the Chinese economy may well be slowing far beyond the 7% that the policymakers have told us it's growing at. But uh, I think also you really have to go to good, old-fashioned supply and demand. For many, many commodities, uh, supply took off when prices were high, and that's basically through to 2011. And it's kind of like, I guess this is a cobweb or a hog cycle or something. You know, it used to be commodity prices rose rapidly because demand was growing so much faster than supply. In reaction to those high prices, supply is now growing so much faster than demand. And it seems that's the main reason why commodity prices are weak, good old-fashioned economics. Now, I think on top of that, commodity markets are probably these days more affected by what I think of as financialization. that is, there's a good deal of activity in uh, commodity markets these days, more than there used to be in a proportionate sense, which is simply related to people uh, speculating on where the price is going. The, I think of this as the actions of play, players who are not genuine end-use buyers or sellers. So the commodity prices, um, I'd have to say, are a mystery, uh, certainly do suggest that um, uh, global growth is not strong, but by no means forecasting serious global economic weakness and therefore um, it's a bit of a mystery why share markets have reacted as negatively as they have in recent days.
1: You say a lot of it is a supply problem, obviously uh, in the case of oil you've got Saudi Arabia and Iran. Pumping aggressively, you've got the U.S. Uh, shale oil boom. Do you think that will be modified to address those supply issues?
3: Well, the, the Saudis had an opportunity last November, and of course they haven't had an ongoing opportunity since then to do what they have in the past—that is, curtail their own output to um, to get the price to behave more the way they wanted. On this occasion, for whatever reason, they have chosen not to do. That um, the U.S. You've quite rightly you've pointed out they're a far bigger player now in um, certainly in uh, in the production of oil and particularly their own oil. But um, you know what they call the rig count, the number of active oil wells, the in the U.S. has uh, has diminished hugely in the past um, several months simply because the price has fallen. So production from those wells no longer profitable, and uh, so yeah, we are seeing. Something of the reverse, if you like, of what happened in 2011, that is when prices are low, low enough for long enough, supply will eventually be curtailed. And of course, demand will be higher than it otherwise would be.
1: So you would would expect eventually things will slip into gear? In terms of supply demand,
3: uh, well, the, we um, in the case of commodities, we are really in equilibrium. We pass through equilibrium on the way from excess, you know, on the way from excess demand to excess supply. Um, it's always been the way with commodity prices, but um, this current patch. Uh, There's no question, weaker for longer than you may have thought. One indication of that, you know, there's a Bloomberg index of commodity prices. Uh, It's about half what it was in 2011, and it's back to where it was in 1999. Wow. So, you know, this is a commodity cycle, but it's a pretty vicious one.
1: Given that uh, China is not expected to rebound any time soon, how long do you think this will continue?
3: It's very difficult. These these questions are always very difficult to answer when commodity prices and share markets are falling. How long is that going to go on? I think when uh, economists such as I, who are not day-to-day traders, can sort of step back and try to look at the fundamentals. And my suspicion is that um, commodity prices will probably be higher a year from now than they are now, but not necessarily by all that much. I, I suspect that most of the fall, however, is behind us, that we'll find some kind of stability somewhere close to here. Our iron ore prices, for example, in um, recent weeks, they've been soft, but they're still above the, uh, the low of a couple of months ago.
1: Do you think that will be reflected in share markets further down the track, or how long do you think we'll be going through this uh, calamitous period in share markets?
3: That, again, is a good question. As I said, when these movements take place, a herd mentality sets in, and it's very, very hard to figure out... Um, you know where the bottom is um the share markets have not only had commodity prices to worry about they've had other things coming from china namely the fall in the chinese share market to me the chinese share market is a casino it's still above where it was early last December, and uh, and it's not that big a factor for the Chinese economy itself. So I think, if anything, we overreact to daily movements there. There's the China- revaluation the of the Chinese yuan or renminbi. Uh, to me, I'm sorry, devaluation, uh, that concern, well, first of all, it took us by surprise, um, and th- there's a genuine concern. What the heck does that mean? But um, you have to remember that the Chinese currency has been pegged to the US dollar, and the US dollar has been strengthening and therefore dragging the chinese currency up and they've really only offset part of that appreciation in recent months um so um you know the uh I think uh, there's more concern about Chinese issues than uh, than there needs to be, but of course there are other worries. There's the ongoing Greek situation, there's a bit of sabre rattling from North Korea, there was a very weak second quarter GDP result from Japan, and, um, and the prospect of an imminent tightening of, of US military policy. So markets have a wall of worry at the moment, and it's, I think it's quite clear they were a bit overvalued beforehand. Uh, we look pretty close to fair value, maybe even a little below fair value, right? now. But that fair value has come down because the earnings of the resource sector um, have been pummeled. And those earnings you could expect eventually to grow over the course of the next year.
1: And needless to say, there are a lot of bargain prices out there right now.
3: That's my view. Um, There's
1: a lot of cheap stuff out there. The only problem is it may get cheaper. Chris Caton, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure.
0: Well, what do you think, Leon? How long are we going to be in the doldrums on resources? Well,
1: well uh, this was interesting. Uh, you know, when I more or less asked him, how long is this going to take? He more or less answered, well, how long's a piece of string?
0: That's right. Nobody knows that. Nobody
1: knows. Nobody knows. So, But it's fascinating, his view about what's what's going to happen with commodity prices, although he says they'll adjust in about a year's time.
0: Yeah, with, with a bit of luck we're going to need luck because quite apart from that we're going to have to re- we're going to have to redo the economy and the way we make a living and now, Leon,
1: the news. Gary, first of all, Beijing this week moved to prop up its spluttering stock market by allowing its huge state pension fund to invest in domestic stocks in the wake of a massive market sell-off. It said the fund would be able to invest up to 30% of its net assets in equities, according to final guidelines from the state council or cabinet. Now, the fund, to which workers must contribute uh, 3.5 trillion yuan, or 746 billion Aussie, in net assets, will, con- will be actually buying the stocks. Now, that however, didn't stop the Shanghai Composite Index falling 8.5% on the first hour of trade on Monday, wiping out all the 2015 gains, and it's been going from bad to worse. And as a result, China's used another lever and cut its interest rates for the fifth time since November, lowering the amount of cash banks must set aside. And it's reduced the uh, one-year lending rate 25 basis points to 4.6%, and the one-year deposit rate to 1.75%. And at the same time, the People's Bank of China reduced the ratio for banks to cover funding gaps by 50 basis points points.
0: Yeah, and we're starting to uh, admit, uh, tacitly anyway, if not in fact, that their growth rate figures were a bit shaky.
1: Well, 7%, but everyone's saying it's going to be lower, which is why markets around the world earlier this week were hammered by what was happening in China, particularly with the stock market and the economic problems there. In Australia on Monday, the market fell to a two-year low, with the all-ordinary slying 4.03%, or 210.6 points, to close at 5,014.2, wiping out $60 billion of Wealth. In London, the FTSE 100 stock felt plummeted 5% to close below 5,900, down 288 points. Germany's DAX 30 fell 4.7%. The CAC 40 in France was down 5.3%. And Spain's IBEX fell 5%. And Italy's FTSE MIB nosedive 6%. But after the rate cut, the FTC. FTC uh, 100 in London actually rose 3.1% in response to what was happening in China and that was the first increase in 11 sessions. The French CAC jumped 4.4%, the German DAX 30 rose 4.8%, Spain's IBEX was up 3.8% and Italy's FTSE MIB jumped 4.9% and US stocks also bounced and the Australian stock market this week actually rose 2.7% as the bargain hunters moved in but it remains volatile because a lot of that uh, buying was done by short sellers and the market actually went down yesterday as a result. So we're going to expect a lot of volatility as a result of this.
0: Yeah, none of which is much good for us right now.
1: Now, Treasurer Joe Hockey has foreshadowed tax relief, funded by billions of dollars in spending cuts to fight bracket creep. However, uh, he has not outlined what, where these cuts are going to be and how it's going to be implemented. The Treasury used a speech to the Tax Institute and Chartered Accountants of Australia and New Zealand in Sydney to flag tax relief in the lead-up to the tax white paper, which he will say contains options for tax cuts. Now, the tax white paper is, will become a key part of the government's platform for the federal election which at this stage is scheduled for 2016. Hockey was warning the economic impact of bracket creep which occurs when people are pushed into higher wage brackets because of inflation and he reckons that 300,000 Australians are expected to move into the second highest tax brackets in the next two years if you don't adjust tax rates. All I can say to that is whatever happened to Australia's debt and deficit disaster if we're doing tax cuts now? The other issue is that bracket creep isn't a problem now because wages are growing at the slowest pace in 17 years. There are certainly good political reasons for offering a tax cutty can't afford. He might see himself as a Peter Costello going to repeated elections offering ever lower rates. But there's a difference between Hockey's tax cuts and Costello's. You see, Costello could afford it. And Hockey's tax cut, according to the parliamentary analysis, would create a $25 billion hole in the government's budget. And we can't afford it without a broad-based increased GST. As a result, hockey was slammed by Alex Mailer, the chief executive of the Certified Practicing Accountants, who accused him of getting up to elect and to pitch an election platform without targeting big issues like the GST, 10 Australia's uncompetitive 30% company tax which compares to 20% in the UK and 17% in Singapore. But Joe Hockey hit back, and he told ABC TV, quote, If you save money where you can and certainly don't go on massive new spending bridges in a range of different areas, then you can find the money to pay for the necessary reform to strengthen the Australian economy. But he didn't outline where they were going to cut. Now, overseas money is pouring into Sydney's malls and offices, with a new report showing Australia's biggest city is now the 10th most traded commercial real estate market in the world. According to global real estate services group DTZ, Overseas investment in Sydney surged 16% over the last year to 8.2 billion US. That's 11.2 billion Aussie. And Sydney is now the second most traded real estate market in the Asia Pacific. That's second only to Tokyo and London and Manhattan, are the two cities that attract the most investment. And actually, the report found the volume of transactions fell in the Asia Pacific over the last 12 months, except for Sydney. Apple set a new record on the Australian bond market last week. It sold 2.35 billion worth of bonds. And look, it sold 1.15 billion of seven-year notes and 1.1 billion of four-year securities. And that was uh, very, very quickly. And that was with the assistance of bankers, Commonwealth Bank, Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs. Now, uh, with the M B N Gary... it's uh, confirmed as a $15 billion blowout in the cost of building it. MBN says costs of building the network could escalate by as much as 36.6% to $56 billion, compared to the $41 billion dollars previously forecast now Malcolm Turnbull has told journalists that the peak funding requirement under the new model is now 46 billion and 56 billion with a base case of 49 billion now the government isn't planning to increase its funding contribution of 29.5 billion so that means MBn is going to have to raise up to 26.5 billion in finance from the private sector and it's going to have to go into debt and Gary the profit season is going in full swing so here's a summary of all the profits so far blue scope folds posted a full-year net profit of $136.3 million compared with a loss of $82.4 million a year ago. South32's uh, full-year net profit fell 56% to $28 million on a pro forma basis, reflecting the change to a standalone company. Private health insurer Nib, NIB, reported an 8% rise in full-year profit to $75.3 million. Lendlease posted a net profit of $618.6 million for the year. Uh, that's down 25% on last year's result. Fortescue posted a weaker-than-expected profit after tax of 370 Million. That's down 89%. Now in the six months to June, bought Long Year posted a net loss of tributal members of $152.3 million, which is a 6.7% widening of the previous corresponding period's $142.85 million loss. UGL posted a full-year net loss of $236.4 million, which is a steep decline on the previous year's profit of $62.1 million. Digital Billboard owner APN Outdoor Quarter. $12.88 million statutory profit compared to $3.7 million loss previously. Caltex, which is 50% owned by shedrome posted a sharp contraction in half yearly revenue, seeing a 24% slide to $9.7 billion. Oil and gas company Beach Energy recorded a net loss of $514.1 million compared to last year's profit of one hundred one point seven eight. Oil and gas explorer AWE posted a net loss of $230.2 million for the year ending June, which is a big drop compared to last year's net profit of 62.5 million. The national broadband network reported a net loss of 2 billion, but its revenues actually rose 101 billion to 161 million. Paddy's Foods, hit by the frozen berries recall, posted a full-year net profit of 2.1 million, which is down 8.87% on the previous year's result. BHP Billiton's profit tumbled 86% to 1.91 billion, which is a sharp downturn from 13.8 billion the previous year. Amcor posted a net profit of 680 million for the year, uh, which is up 35 percent. Shopping centre operator Centre's net profit fell 79.6 percent to 1.083 billion, that's down from 5.305 billion a year ago. Pacific Brands posted a loss of 97.7 million, which is actually an improvement on the 224 million dollar loss incurred in the previous year. So they're getting somewhere despite the low oil, low oil price. Papua New Guinea. Focus oil and gas producer Oil Search logged a net profit of 227.5 million US, which is 290.6 million Aussie for the six months to the end of June. That's up 49.2% in the previous results. Spotless posted a profit of 142.8 million in the 12 months of June 30 against the previous year's $34.7 million loss. Hellscope posted a full year net profit of 153.7 million and up 188%. Oil and gas producer Senec posted a loss of 80.6 million for the year end of June compared to the previous year year's $38 million profit. Rivers Fashion Group reported a full year loss of $4.5 million after being dragged into the red by its Rivers stores, compared to a net profit of $12.5 million last year. Blackmores made a, a record net profit of $46.6 million. That's up 83% from the previous years. And not only that, but their share price went past $100 yesterday. A big chunk of that sales to China, isn't it? That's right. That's Well, about a third of their sales are now going to Asia, and they're selling a lot to, through Alibaba, Kerry Stokes' diversified investment vehicle Seven Group Holdings posted a statutory net loss of 360 million for the year, compared with last year's profit of 263 million. BC BCI swung to a full-year net loss of 159.5 million from profit of 71.9 million the year before. Wally Parsons recorded a full-year loss of 54.9 million against the previous year's profit of 249.1 million. Westfield posted a profit of 465.9 million. Australia's biggest plastic packaging manufacturer, Pack Group, posted a profit of 67. 63 million, which is up 17.24%. Gas Infrastructure AP, Company APA Group posted a statutory net profit of 559.9 million, which is up 63%. Insurance Broker Group Steadfast posted a profit of 42.1 million, which is actually six, up 68% on the last year's result. Oil and Gas producer Drill Search posted a loss of 8.1 million, turning into the red after last year's $41.9 million profit. Charter Hall posted a full-year profit of hundred seventeen. Nine million, which is up 43.6 percent on the previous year and air new zealand has chalked up a record pre-tax earnings of almost 500 million new zealand that's about 454 million 454.7 million aussie which is actually a record for the national carrier good leon now
0: next week we're talking to coach
1: deborah mclaughlin from the u.s good oh that'll be interesting And uh, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.